2: If you lived in London where the whole system is one of false good fellowship and you may know a man for 20 years without finding out that he hates you like poison you would soon have your eyes opened. There we do unkind things in a kind way. We say bitter things in a sweet voice. We always give our friends chloroform when we tear them to pieces. George Bernard Shaw, you never can tell. So as usual I've opened the front door and grabbed the first
3: two likely looking Londoners who happen to be out there
0: It does seem that everyone's got a story to tell
1: I think screaming does help as well Ooh, yes, the Warnerman walrus
3: They dug out bodies in 1887, 1873 What did he look like when he came out the other end of that? got Sarah Palin coming, how do you feel about that?
0: A little bit <laughs> pathetic <laughs>
3: So we're in the parlour of Dr. Johnson's house. One sees a story that is both of protests and of coming together. So they're banning people from bringing food to homeless Yeah, they're banning soup
0: runs. You know, we weren't buckled by the terrorism. A word in your eye, don't worry or push. A
1: step in the gate is worth two in the bush.
3: Which area of ridiculousness do we start on with that story? Why would you give a medal to a pigeon?
2: Listen, you're all idiots. You don't want to culture or anything like <laughs>
3: No running, no throwing. This is pretty serious stuff.
1: You engage with other people, you link across to other people. It's just huge. It's gigantic.
3: (laughs) How many times have you done this so far? That depends. What what do you think of that approach? I think that's terrible.
0: London life is a really rich experience and there's a lot that's good about living London. Boris Johnson. weighs as much as 40
1: school children.
3: What a peculiar conversation. Hello, it's Friday, October the 5th, 2012. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or tweet me at Londonist Sound. Well, we've got a fantastic vista of London today. I think there's not a landmark... That I can't see from here There's even one or two landmarks that I've learnt today Pictures I'm sure will be available via the usual methods And with me here, hosting us in fact Is uh, Christopher Fowler He's the multi-award winning author of f- 35-ish novels uh, I, li- I like the, w- the way that he's lost count uh, He's the author particularly of the Brian and May mystery novels And has written comedy and drama for BBC Radio uh, Stuff for Radio 1 He also contributes to Financial Times Independent on Sunday, Black, Static. Mi- magazine and many, many more. Uh, Fiona Rule is a freelance writer and researcher with a particular interest in London and especially the Victorian era. And over the past 10 years, Fiona has uh, written lots of articles for magazines, journals. And in 2008, her first book, The Worst Street in London, came out, followed up quickly by one about London's Docklands. And the latest, which is out uh, just this last month, it's London's Labyrinth, the story of the underground city. And uh, she's here too. Hello, you both. Hello. Hi there. We should perhaps start with the interest in London because, of course, that's what unites everybody who's connected with this um, show. But how, how many of your uh, books are London based and how much of your uh, writing, Chris, has been uh, London focused?
2: Um, nearly every single one of them because um, I was born in London and uh, I think it's partly laziness. You tend to write about the things you know most. Uh, and um, But then at some point I became a bit London obsessive and started digging around a lot and of course the trouble is the more you find out about London the more there is to find Um, so as far as I'm concerned it's going to sustain me right through my career writing about the city and the victorian era holds a particular attraction for you fiona why so
0: um i think with the victorian era and the same could be said of the edwardian era as well is that it's just out of reach we've got things around that we see every day that are leftovers from an era that was very very different to today and i think that makes it fascinating because you can get a glimpse but you can't see the whole picture
3: Well, I think that's particularly pertinent given the place we're in at the moment, which has its roots firmly, I think, in the Victorian canals and uh, we're surrounded by water. The building itself is shaped in accordance with that theme.
2: Yeah, and shaped like a barge and uh, echoes all the barges that are around us, uh, which were mostly used to bring in ice uh, to create London's ice cream Fad of the uh, the late uh, 1900s.
3: Right. Yes, we we're just around the corner from the canal museum, of course. And what I had no idea about is that the canals and the ice cream industry are so closely connected.
2: Yes, yeah, Signor Gatti used to um, carve his, uh, shave his, uh, the the ice that went into the hokey pokey, um, hand carts that went round uh, the Strand selling ice cream. Okay, so uh, we've got a, a rich history, and we're going to delve
3: into it uh, as we go on. Um, can we talk a little bit about London's Labyrinth, though? Because this is a, a fine book, as I say, just out. Uh, the London's Labyrinth, the world beneath the city's streets. The, the risk is that there's been a book about every aspect of London already. How well trodden did you find the, the tunnels and the footways and the, uh, the areas under the city?
0: Well, yeah, there's no denying that um, underground London has been written about. Quite, quite a great deal, in fact. Um, but what I wanted to do with th- with this book is what I do with all my books. I'm more interested in the normal people that were involved in the creation of London, not so much the great and the good. We all know about Joseph Bazalgette. We all know about Charles Pearson. You know, we all know about um, Isambard Kingdom Brunel. I'm equally, and perhaps more interested in the navvies and the gangers and the labourers that actually built these places and. the lives that they led and you know the the conditions that they had to face i mean for instance one of the things that really staggered me actually was when brunel was building his experimental thames tunnel back in the 1820s these chaps that went and actually dug underneath the thames this had never been done before and they were going meters underneath the thames not knowing whether the roof was going to cave in and they would be drowned. These were incredibly brave people. And I find that fascinating that, you know, that people were prepared to do that um, just for the sake of experimentation, really, more than anything else. I
3: think histories of working class individuals i suppose we've got to call them working class individuals in the, in the context that we're talking here is a reasonably recent phenomenon isn't it to look at that strata of life prior to uh, say late victorian times i think i'm right in saying that the focus was very much more on notable uh, people you know people further up the social scale so how, how do you go about connecting with people of that sort and how close can you get to them
0: I think you can get surprisingly close. I think the whole interest in, um, you know, your average man on the street really started to come out of the fact that people got very interested in their own family history. And let's face it, most of us don't come from a terribly eminent family where you had, you know, politicians or barons or whatever that's part of your family. Most of us come from families, you know, that were agricultural labourers or shop workers or whatever. And I think the interest in the ordinary person has come out of that and um it's surprising the amount of information that you can find out about these people once you actually start digging and looking at newspaper reports and looking at censuses and all sorts of things and uh, you know you can find an awful lot
3: there's a, there's a really trite connection here between digging under the surface which i'm going to resist you'll be pleased you? <laughs> there
2: was a, they did a great um oral history um thing at uh, the museum of london whereby yeah. they recorded um uh, uh, people who were in their 90s memories of people in their 90s and of course you, that what you were saying about Victorian period and Edwardian period being just out of reach suddenly um, it was within reach because these were people with direct memories and what they did was they they dotted the recordings on telephones all around the the building and so when you're suddenly it's like you're listening to a phone call from your gran and it really brought to life and they've just done the same thing at the um at uh, the Foundling Museum, where they're, they're, they've got rec- uh, memories of people who grew up in the Foundling Hospital, um, which you can listen to as oral histories. So again, it just really does feel like you, you, it's that last link to the past is still there. Yeah. Do you find yourself doing a similar sort of research for your work, Chris? Yeah, because I think the internet only takes you so far, and library books only take you so far. Um, for me I did one of the Brian to May stories set in the Blitz so the first thing I did was ask my mum because she was a secretary in the Strand during the Blitz and one of the first things she said to me was I remember all the telephone directories and I said well what do you mean she said well the first thing that happened was all the plate glass, which was relatively new to the Strand. All the plate glass windows had been blown in, and so many so that they ran out of sandbags and used telephone directories to block all the all the all the windows up. And she said, "I just remember all these walls of telephone directories." These are the kind of details that you just don't find in. Uh, library books.
0: Yeah, I think also that um, people that have lived through different eras should really be encouraged to talk about it because I try and talk to you know, older people a lot as research because it's an absolute mine of information but I think generally what happens, the, their opening gambit is, oh well I don't know anything about that, but they do and once you actually start asking them questions it's fascinating what they come out with the devil's in the detail I think in a lot of things and this is what talking to people and getting oral histories can give you
3: right and that's a lot of detail that they would perhaps consider to be uh, yeah, really. uninteresting yeah yeah uh, i had the same experience i was watching uh, a, an old bit of footage from maybe the late 60s or something like that of people who'd been on the titanic talking about it and to uh, realize how close to hand but like you
2: say just out of reach now but it's often as, as you say it's often in the around the edges of the things that were saved from the time because the the bbc famously wiped all its videotapes um, you know, they kept all the, sh- the recorded Shakespeare, which is probably the least interesting stuff they could have kept. And then a clip surfaced on YouTube of Kenneth Williams going back to his childhood home in Marchmont Street, Bloomsbury. And he walked through the building, and at the back of the building, and this must have been filmed in the mid-'70s, there were still the ten- tenement uh, balconies strung with washing that obviously are, are, are gone now. And I had no idea that just behind that building, which now has a blue black... Bla- there were all these tenement um, properties it's perhaps worth saying something about how this
3: area has changed because before we started recording you were mentioning that in the last 10 years it's undergone a radical transformation we're of course quite close to St Pancras station could you could you talk us through what's what you've seen in the last eight ten years
2: Sure, it was um, a large area of of small warehouses. There were things like um, the Guinness uh, bottle washing plant was here. Um, A lot of people working with very unpleasant uh, chemicals, uh, young girls dealing with uh, mercury. In fact, their skeletons went on display in uh, the Welcome uh, uh, Museum and um, the the skeletons were bright green. Where they suffered mercury poisoning so uh, if you look at old footage of the canals even in the 70s it was a solid morass of mud with cars stuck up out of it it was like a sort of desolate um, very very depressed uh, area and um, there was a big scheme to pave over all of the canals and turn them into car parks which didn't go through mercifully and now we've got uh, the water is so fresh that it's full of fish Um, But what they've done is they've kept a lot of the old warehouses and made them into mixed use. So opposite me, they've torn down an old pub, which used to have a well in the basement, and it's now the headquarters of The Guardian, uh, a concert hall, a couple of art galleries, restaurants. And the huge brown site behind it is now going to be home to 27 new streets and town squares where the old gas holders used to be in some areas the
3: gentrification and uh, reuse particularly of industrial work and particularly along the riverside tends to be bemoaned by people who sort of see that as having pushed out uh, for example river life and and so forth but it sounds as though this area was uh, not doing So well, But is there anything that's been uh, lost around here as a result of this change?
2: I actually watched, um, there was a TV series recently about um, the the streets of London, the six streets of London. Mm -hmm. And there was a guy standing in the Caledonian Road complaining, oh, it's not what it was. And I do actually think, thank God, when I used to come up here, when my uncles used to live in King's Cross and you'd you'd step over drug addicts and there there were prostitutes everywhere. And I don't really, I don't understand what's been lost from that past.
0: I was just thinking when you were talking Christopher about the the gas holders that were over at uh, St Pancras apparently there's plans to actually reinstate them they're up north at the moment somewhere being cleaned up and then they're going to be reinstated in a slightly different position but still in the whole sort of King's Cross St Pancras complex and they're actually going to build apartments inside them which I think is quite fascinating and I, I can't wait to see what they look like actually.
3: Does that mean the penthouse goes up and down according to how much gas is in there? I'm, I'm not sure whether you've just horrified Chris completely.
0: <laughs> no, I, I
2: did actually see that on the plans. And my only problem with that is you'll be looking out of all these steel bits and it must be a bit like being in prison. But uh, it, there's, they've kept one over there. And uh, yeah, the other, I think one's going to be a park. Um, but already, as you've seen, the new Granary Square is open with 1,200 fountains in it that roll like a huge wave. And the first thing that's happened is families take their kids on hot days there. To, to dance through the fountains. It's, it's become a bit of a local uh, focal point. That's very exciting. That's a treasure I've heard nothing about. I'm looking, actually, Fiona,
3: at a picture in your book here. It's entitled The Fleet River Near St Pancras, 1825. It's an engraving, and we can see a wooden shack that looks pretty dilapidated by the side of a, a very modest river and a couple wandering along the towpath in what essentially is green fields with a, a few small houses in, in the background. So that can't be very far from where we are right now what a radical transformation
0: very radical transformation I think um, one of the things that really interested me when I was writing about London's labyrinth is all the lost rivers that are actually underneath London and a lot of it wasn't really an intentional um, yes let's put this river into a pipe and bury it it was just a gradual thing that happened as London was growing because you'd have a river flowing through an area and because there were lots of people there it got filled with rubbish and so then it got terribly smelly and people didn't like it So they paved over it. And this is how kind of it gradually the rivers started to disappear. It wasn't really by design. It was was more by accident that they started to disappear. And I think um, a lot of people don't really realise that there are numerous rivers flowing underneath London that we just completely forget about, the fleet being one of them
3: and uh, I know these, these have been the subject of uh, discussion, there's one or two other uh, reasonably well visited such as the the underground during war um, but you've dug up some, fa- well I must not say digging up, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds every time like I'm making a cheap pun there uh, we, we're kind of familiar I guess with the second world war image of people hiding in the tunnels to escape. and of course there was loads of you know, Churchill's uh, war rooms and all that sort of thing going on on the tube uh, what I didn't realise is and it, it's very exciting when you start the chapter and it's uh, well the, the War was starting to rumble along. People went down, and you realise this is 1914. And in fact, the uh, the tube network, the, I think it was the post office tube network, um, uh, uh, the half constructed network, was being used to house mummies, amongst other things.
0: Yes, the uh, the post office railway, which operated until reasonably recently, I remember you could go down and have a look at it. Well, during the First World War, this this partially built railway was used to house a lot of the artefacts from the British Museum and other art galleries, because of course it. It was the perfect place to go and put very valuable things because it was unlikely that they would get terribly damaged in there in-
3: including the royal family
0: <laughs> including the royal family yes <laughs> what,
3: what was the uh, what was the, the, the more surprising uh, aspects of what you've discovered underground though because as i say that's that's the sort of thing we might have half an idea about whereas where uh, things perhaps around um hiding various departments under things in dollis hill the admiralty i think had a place up in cricklewood or something that was half submerged under an innocuous looking building. um and, and what, what other sort of surprises lurk under the soil or have lurked under there
0: i think the most interesting thing that i found when i was researching it is the the fact that London Underground don't throw anything away I was lucky enough to um, have a few tours of Disuse underground stations and disuse parts of stations that are still in use today and it's quite incredible because hidden behind these corridors that thousands of people walk along every day are doors that are almost sort of hidden in the wall and if you walk through that door you are in a completely different world and what happens with most of London Underground's things is when they decide to decommission something they literally close the door on it and lock it Um, i saw the old flood barriers before the um the thames barrier came into use they had flood barriers that would come down um in the tubes to stop london flooding and there's a whole control center that's still there behind a door in a tube station i just walk along the platform and go through this door and there's the control center it's quite incredible really everyone will be dying to know which tube station um, I'm not sure whether I'm actually allowed to say... Oh, is it really restricted yeah, information? I th- yeah, I'm afraid so. So um, it's in central London, but um, I, I don't think I'm at liberty to say which one it is. But I did go also to Down Street Station, which is um, an old disused station that was in between Hyde Park Corner and Green Park on the Piccadilly Line. And that's fascinating because that was used as offices during the Second World War. And there's still stuff down there from the war, like the old telephone exchange and you can still see the showers and the baths because, of course, people actually lived down there if the if bombing was actually going on. It quite incredible.
2: There's a, a tube station just out of the sight of this window, which is on York Way, which is disused, and one of the reasons why it's never been reopened is it's the only station in London where the, escalate, the where the elevator opens directly onto the platform, thereby creating a massive fire hazard. Um, and it's too expensive to restore, so it's it's used by um, LT workers. Um, so it's our, and indeed we have a picture in Fiona's book here.
3: Oh, right, excellent.
2: Uh, the 1927
3: picture of the York Road station. And that's the booking hall just there, and in the background there, I think we can—is that the elevator we can see? Well,
0: no. I, what I like about this particular picture is that it, there's a ghost in it, which is obviously because of old photographic techniques. But if you look at the picture, there's a, the ghostly figure of a man walking through the uh, the station. So.
1: Mm, yes,
2: not not too sure about that ghost. I've actually I've actually just used that tube station as the location of a story for a, um, an anthology <laughs> because of its its supposed ghostly connections. But um, it's interesting. The the, uh, the the combination of ghosts and rivers always go together because rivers are associated with lowlands. They're damp, high infant mortality, the creation of ghost stories. So ghost stories come from the low ground of London, and never the high ground, never the Hampsteads, always the Deptfords.
3: Where do your two writing practices part ways? Of course, there's the the obvious large overlap of uh, perhaps subject matter and perhaps the historical research. But Chris, where does your uh, stuff take off from there? Not not least, of course, being uh, fictional.
2: Yeah, I tend to take... uh, I, I work in a lot of different genres and I tend to take the odd massive leap of... Of uh, logic into more the more fantastical areas of London. One of them being mythical London, which I come back to quite a lot. And in fact, one of the Bryant and May mysteries is set in King's Cross because of Pentonville and Penton being a head, and the idea that it was a sacrificial site because it was at the head of the height of London and you know the penton gave us the symbol of the head on on penny coins and there is supposedly a sacrificial site there's also supposed supposedly a cave around here merlin's cave there was a pub until the 80s called the merlin pub and there are there are local experts in the area who hold talk talks on this centered around the old peace bookshop um on the caledonian road where they still discuss the mythology of the area so um This way madness lies, because once you start digging into this, you end up with quite a lot of very, very obsessive people. And at some point, you have to go, okay, that's enough. Now now I'm going to add my own bit of fiction to it. And then you spin it into something that kind of has a logical ending. It seems
3: to me in just the same way that it's possible to point at historical fact as discovered or as documented and say well this is how things were and this is not how things were the the, the brigade of uh, folk who have an interest in things like Hawksmoor and the uh, sort of slightly mystical side thereof and uh, illuminati influence in london and ley lines and all that sort of stuff there's a very deep and, and clearly held set of beliefs going on there how, how much trouble do you run the risk of getting yourself into by departing from that, that orthodoxy
2: well, actually, you get quite a lot of uh, letters about, you know, you do realize you're living on a confluence of ley lines, and that's where Alistair Crowley used to live. Well, as far as I can see, Alistair Crowley used to live just about everywhere in London. Um, <laughs> so once you start down that route, yeah, you do. You do end up getting it. I don't want to end up going down and become becoming like one of those ufologists, you know, in America going on conventions to Area Fifty One, because there are an awful lot of people that meet in you know old temperance halls to discuss the mythology of London. I think the group is the groups are fairly small in number though. Without, without obviously, uh, naming names, unless you feel
3: an urge to, is there a lot of rivalry on the uh, historical or maybe historical
0: writing scene? Well, if there is, I certainly don't get involved in it. Um, I I don't think so I think uh, with historical writing I think what's really important is that you get your facts right if you don't then you are going to come up with a a lot of flack from people and rightly so Um, I found it particularly um, a, a very good discipline actually when I was writing The Worst Street in London because there's a section on Jack the Ripper now this has you know the biggest following and these people know every single tiny Bit of information about the Whitechapel murders. So I had to be very, very careful and make sure that I got my facts absolutely right. Otherwise, I knew I was going to come in for a lot of stick.
3: So, how did you? Go about that. You must have a sort of a double-checking process or something.
0: Yes, check and recheck and cross-check as well. So if I found a report in in a book, I would check it against the newspapers of the time. I really did get quite anarachy about the whole thing.
3: <laughs> Christopher buried his head in his hands at the mention of Jack the Ripper. There,
2: <laughs> yeah, it kind of horrifies me really because there's so many books on Jack the Ripper, as Fiona says, and um, you see the tours going around, you know, in Spittle and you see people going upon this. this. NCP car park was once a, and you know, you can see all these people trying desperately to imagine a Victorian building there, which is long gone. I suppose the last one I can remember seeing on film was when James Mason made the film called The London Nobody Knows, where he stood in there. He said, come on, let's go in and look at this back garden. At this point, one of the victims was, was murdered and you go, oh, actually, yeah, I can see this still has the shade of Victoriana in this footage but you go back now and it's pretty much gone
3: I'm sad that Telly Savalas, who did a fantastic video for Birmingham, promoting the city in, ooh, let's say, the 70s, without ever visiting, apparently. But he did a great voiceover in this uh, in this cheesy video promoting Birmingham, and I really wish he'd done the same for London. I'd watch that. I'd probably
2: watch it repeatedly. <laughs> so. Actually, um, they did the same thing. They hired Boris Karloff to promote London pubs. Um, I knew the creative director who hired him, and he said it was a bit of a shot in the foot because actually just scared people off. <laughs>
0: I'm not (laughs) surprised.
2: I've got to drop this in because we're on the
3: uh, we're touching the subject of pubs. You mentioned earlier that you uh, know a a handlebar moustache oriented pub where people have the right to boot you out of the seat if their (laughs) name is on a plaque at the table.
2: Yeah, it's the RAF uh, uh, London Pilots or the English Pilots pub, the Windsor Castle just off the Edgware Road. In I think I'm right in saying Crawley Crawford Place, Crawford Place. And it's completely stuffed, every square inch, stuffed with uh, either uh, flying memorabilia from the uh, Dambusters logbooks through to um, China, China plates depicting uh, the Royal Family and dickie henderson for some unearthly reason who must have maybe sung in the pub
0: maybe i don't know i mean i i know this pub i haven't frequented it as much as christopher i don't think but uh, (laughs) it's an amazing pub and i think if anybody is near crawford place it is definitely worth a visit because it's just a fascinating very quirky very unique place
3: i think i'm going to be paying a visit we'll be talking in just a moment about how stuff from king's cross helped to rebuild moscow there's just time before we do that to mention our sponsors this week and they are doing something.co.uk. if you're interested in uh, finding great dates and fun things to do and meeting up with people who've got similar interests to yourself whether that's a, a date in the perhaps romantic sense or just wanting to up with people and uh, have a bit of fun in this big city maybe maybe jump into fountains as previously suggested this is the way to do it just go to doing something.co.uk forward slash londonist and i I think you can put your name on there and see who else is on there and then if you're interested you can exchange messages date people and use london for the purpose for which it was intended or something doing something.co.uk forward slash londonist So, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule, as we survey the very pleasant surroundings here around the back of uh, King's Cross St Pancras, I'm looking at a picture which (laughs) shows a large heap of ash. What's this all about, Fiona?
0: Well, this is a story um, called London Rubble, How the City's Soil Gets Recycled. And basically it's talking about when building works go on, um, you know, what do people actually do with the soil? Um, there's uh, the picture that we we're actually looking at was for um, on the site of Kings Cross Railway Station. Um, and apparently some of that rubble was actually bought by the Russians who uh, mixed the ash into bricks to help them build a war-ravaged, moscow which is quite fascinating what, what's the year of this that we're talking give or take um it's uh, 1848 um is when that happened
3: um by uh, the account of this picture in 1848 king's cross looked like a lot of allotments surrounded by a bit of a wood with this, it really is a mountain isn't it it's got horse and carts going up there to deposit more waste up a track up the middle not probably the sort of
2: thing that would have encouraged you to move in here if it had no, <laughs> been a here Christian yeah. a giant heap of rubbish but it's quite strange when you think that it was once a royal spa because Nell Gwynne lived here and there were ornamental fountains and peacocks strutting around in King's Cross so it, it was quite a tumble from grace to end up as being London's rubbish spot
3: So this area has really gone through some astonishing oscillations in fortune.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's I guess because it's so central to, particularly since the steam age, it became a very very central uh, connection point for London to the Midlands. Um, that it has just gone through astonishing number of changes.
0: There's also um, the story goes on to sort of talk about um, more modern things, really. That uh, rubbish that's been exca- well, not really rubbish, but soil, etc., that's been excavated from London sites has um, gone to be used for. And one of the ones that um, I hadn't really thought about before, but of course, I um, the result of, of stuff that's been moved from one place to another is. Uh, I think it's pronounced Northala Field. Near Northolt, and anybody that uses the A forty would um, would know these mounds. They almost look kind of Neolithic in um, in structure because they they look a bit like burial mounds. But now you can actually walk up them. There's little paths that sort of go around the circumference of the uh, the mounds, and you can walk up to the top, which is quite quite amazing really so
3: i suppose this is something that might have cropped up in your investigations into things like excavating the tube what what went on with all the stuff all the the earth that came out from the tube where did that all end up
0: well a lot of um, where the stuff from the tube ended up um, is quite mysterious there's no real major documentation um, about where it came went from Um, but i think some of it went over to america um, really where, yes apparently so where they used it as infill for building sites etc on ships
3: now what, what's the thinking there because they've surely got a fair bit of uh land that they could put in holes
0: you would have thought so but yeah there's documentation there that sort of says that maybe some of it went over there um and also they some of it went to other places in london i mean part of um what this london rubble story is talking about is Stamford bridge um which um apparently um some of the land that was dug out to build the uh, the metropolitan line was actually used as infill for uh, for stanford bridge
3: I'm particularly fascinated by the old nickel rookery of Dickens' time, which has since become, uh, well, it looks a bit like a bandstand is perched on the top of it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the old nickel rookery in Shoreditch um, is a very interesting area. I don't know whether um, either of you saw the programme. It was part of the city streets um series that they did on the BBC and it was a really interesting program about how um arnold circus actually came about and um basically potted history of it is that the old nickel rookery was probably one of the worst areas of london terribly run down terribly overcrowded all the ills of of a city were were there
3: well, we should probably say because not everyone will know what a rookery was
0: a rookery um was i don't really know why they were called rookeries because you know they don't really resemble rookeries up in trees but uh, rookeries how i imagined them to be were real sort of you know labyrinthine um dwellings really they were houses that had probably been built for a completely different purpose a completely different class of person and had gradually deteriorated the rooms had all got split up and cordoned off and so you had lots of poor families um living in a building that Really wasn't designed for that purpose. It didn't have um, enough basic facilities like water facilities, toilets, etc., etc. Um, and so consequently, um, the rookeries were basically slums. Um, and the people that lived there um, had dreadful lives, really. Um, And the old nickel was one of the most notorious um, in London, particularly by the end of the 19th century when it had become terribly overcrowded. And what the, um, the, I believe it was the London County Council decided to do was completely demolish it and build um, new model dwellings. At the time, this was a big thing that was happening in London, the whole model dwelling things. Um, You've got things like the Peabody buildings, which are still around today. You know, this was, philanthropic dwellings for the poor. Unfortunately the only thing with these philanthropic dwellings was that they weren't really designed to help the people that um, had previously lived on the land that they were built on. So for example in the Old nickel, you had what can only be described as an underclass really and in order to go to the new buildings that they built there you had to have some form of income and of course the people that had lived in the rookery didn't and so they were basically pushed out it's the age-old problem of what do you do for the people that are, are really unable to help themselves
3: well yes this has been very much what we've been talking about recently and that that uh, phrase affordable housing seems to uh, apply somewhere along the line here doesn't it?
0: yeah
2: um, just on a note on um the, the rookery thing i always assumed it was because of the noise because they were all so narrow and the the, the the argument was that once a policeman entered a rookery the cry went up through the through the rookery that and they all thought they all caught the cry policeman in the rookery so uh, everybody suddenly you know shut up shop and because uh, obviously there was a um, quite a lot of crime and crime based in those areas well, this is very much
3: one of your specialist areas, surely, uh, the, 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 how crime and London intersect with each other. And uh, could we say something about Bryant and May? When, when are they operating?
2: Yeah, they kind, well, I kind of shift their dates about all over the place because I, I'm working on, a, on um, a cataloguing Bryant's unreliable memoirs, which allows me to slide the dates quite nicely, because if they're in their 80s, um, it's a bit like saying, you know, why don't the Simpsons ever get any older? Well, it's a bit stupid because it's, it's, I'm writing fiction, so I don't mind that they don't get old, older. But it does create a problem for me if I want to set stories in, in the 40s and the 50s. But I, I do, and then I, I, I slip the dates accordingly. And it allows me to write in things which are... And I've just done a story which is uh, based in in The Great Smog in 1952. Mm. Um, and then I'll, I've got one in Swinging London, and you can you can cover different uh, different eras. And then as soon as you start researching anything in that particular era, why I went into the career of Simon D this morning, you know the the '60s uh, talentless TV presenter who interviewed everyone famous, got too big for his boots, and crashed and burned in the space of two years, destroyed his career uh went from london's most famous person you know media person down to nobody it was it was uh, really a really sort of a a, a byroad that i got taken down researching a story and i don't know about you fiona but i end up spending way too much time researching and then using about a hundredth of what i've discovered
3: and then cutting that in the final
2: edit yeah then then you write it out completely because you realize you're just being boring <laughs> What's the stick with Bryant and May what, what sort of detectives are they Um they 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 run a thing called the Peculiar Crimes Unit which isn't quite as stupid as it sounds It's um the idea is that it was founded uh, during the war uh, Churchill did actually found a lot of small unusual scientific uh, units during the war my father worked in one uh, and he was 19 I think And that most of these were populated by very young men working for the government in quite a bleak way. So, um, for example, Churchill wanted to understand how camouflage worked in war. So he founded a unit not staffed by uh, military experts, but by members of the Royal Academy who understood how light fell. And they designed camouflage for battleships and tanks. This was this kind of free thinking. He also employed Dennis Wheatley to work out what the French might do, (laughs) which was, you know, which was really great. So, you know, we want to know what's going to happen. So let's get a speculative author. You know to uh, on board and of course Wheatley was very excited and eventually ended up working you know under the auspices of the government which I think was this big secret dream to do so the um, the idea of my t- detectives is they run this uh, cri- they've run this crime u- crimes unit forever and the, the the basic mission statement is to investigate crimes that may cause public unrest so it's everything from you know murder in a public space like a pub or a church uh, to a, to a government's Scandal to. Uh, I've done one, uh, one set on the building site of King's Cross in, in which uh, stuff is, is uncovered by earth movers. Um, I've done one set in the London Underground and one set in London pubs, and bit by bit I'm covering virtually every possible. London institution.
0: I mean London is just a fantastic mine of information and as I think Christopher
3: Another said, another wonderful subterranean pun.
0: I know. I've obviously got it on the brain, haven't I? <laughs> um as Christopher said. You know, London is um the more you find out about London, the more questions there are actually. It's just a really weird thing about it. In fact, uh, last week I was down in Bloomsbury Square.
2: And they were doing. A, they had a book book sale to raise money for some local charity, and they on the show, One of the books I found on the stall was A. P. Herbert's. Um, he A. P. Herbert had picked through, and he was very interested in the judicial system. He'd picked through uh, judgments at Newgate to create a book of Newgate prisoners' uh, excuses for for their crimes and I got this, I got this book the lady said it'll, it'll cost you 50p and I said I think I should give you a quid for this because it's a really quite unusual book um, so you, as soon as you find something like that here's another thing it's not in print and it's another source of information on London that I didn't know about I've just remembered
3: we've got news stories as well I've got so carried away with all this Londonism uh, what have we got going on here let's look at uh, well this ties in historically doesn't it Forgotten Disasters is a series that Londonist has been running and by the way as always the stories we're discussing here can be found on londonist.com along with much much more and the series here forgotten disasters the Colney hatch fire Colney hatch is perhaps a place in london that people are uh, uh, some people might not be familiar with it's not central who would lead in on this one
0: um yeah i'll lead in on Colney hatch because it's somewhere that i've i've kind of always known um i've i've lived in north london and the vicinity all my life and um colney hatch was one of these places when i was younger it was it was quite a scary place really because it i don't if people know what it looks like it's a very kind of victorian slightly gothic looking place um quite forbidding really and i think it just had that aura about it that none of us really you know liked it very much and it always looked a bit scary and then uh recently i think in the last sort of 10 years or so it's been turned into this um luxury housing development which has got the awful name of princess park i mean i've got absolutely no idea why it's called princess park and i don't know i just personally i could never live somewhere that i knew had seen an awful lot of misery and an awful lot of you know sadness in it and um i i do wonder about the people that live there whether they ever sort of Think about that, you know, when they're, when they're living there. Probably not, actually.
3: Well, we should we should say, of course, what, precisely what that misery is.
0: Well, um, the misery was that um, Colney Hatch was uh, one of London's, um, I think they used to call them lunatic asylums. Um, but the thing was that you didn't go to these places because um, you were necessarily um, mentally ill. You could go to these places if you'd had a lot of children out of wedlock. You could go to these places if you had a drink problem. You know, it wasn't necessarily um, that you were, you know, completely mad that you went there. I saw, I saw an, an entry for
2: one of the bedlam um, inmates that said she's she was admitted suffering from hereditary disappointment. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I think we all
0: are one way or another, aren't we? I think so. (laughs) I think lunatic asylums, first of all, started to be places um, probably the beginning of the 1800s, as um, places that were really like hospitals, and the patients there got quite good care. I think what happened was, as cities developed, and as London developed over the 1800s, these places, like the rest of the city, just got too overcrowded. And consequently, the patients that were in there suffered quite quite terribly i think they were locked up for long periods of time because there weren't enough staff to to care for them and also i think that there was just a a really um wrong perception of you know why why people were in there as i say i I know people whose, um well i know one person in particular whose father was put in there because he had a drink problem and it was just the most inappropriate place really to put somebody like that and
3: 1903 comes oh, I find it remarkable that this still existed in 1903 you, you sort of feel with the uh, advent of the 20th century lunatic asylums wouldn't exist anymore but here they are and it's an all wooden wing of the building
0: yes and um, apparently the, uh, the the timber wards uh, caught fire and um, at the time there was a very strong wind blowing and uh, the the fire spread um, and there's a press report um, that's actually published on the um, the article here um, from the bottom Boston Evening Transcript... And um, it's it's really quite awful what it's saying here.
3: And before you read this, I will just say uh, some listeners may find this disturbing. This is pretty graphic, what's about to uh, follow in the next moment here.
0: It's saying some of the, uh, the lunatics were burned in their beds and the charged remains of others were found huddled together in corners, while groups of partially consumed bodies on the site of the corridors showed that many persons lost their lives and sacrificed those of others in their frantic efforts to force a passage through the flames to to the main building, which just presents such an awful picture, doesn't it? Um, apparently, um, as a result of the fire, uh, 52 people, all women, lost their lives.
3: And all, all Jewish as well. No... Mention at all is made now on the website of the developer who's turned it into luxury apartments. Perhaps not surprisingly, but uh, there's just a, a sentence on the Wikipedia
2: page for the institution. It's really been glossed over. It, well, I think the whole subject of the the, the lunatic asylum has been. Um, one tends to forget that Bedlam is technically still in existence. Um, it's called the Royal Bethlehem hospital it, uh, it's very careful to point out although its history is all there it's very careful to point out care and rehabilitation is, is extremely different to um, days when they simply painted the walls blue and stuck a canary on each ward to cheer people up instead of actually letting them out mm. that's, that's-
3: horrific but funny isn't it yeah. <laughs> this, this will sort everything out that was the extent of mental health care for canary
2: <laughs> or, 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 invite, or inviting people in for a shilling to come and poke mm. them with a stick so I'm sure that was help of the, uh, part of the rehabilitative
3: <laughs> process uh, no link whatsoever between uh, pictures of canaries and pictures of Fenton the dog uh, which is what you're supposed to look for you may know the Fenton video, the guy in uh, Richmond Park, I, don't know, I haven't actually seen uh, an interview with him Not that there's much to be interviewed about, but he's, I think, just becoming the subject of such a uh, a notorious bit of video footage in which his dog runs off across Richmond Park chasing deer into the path of oncoming traffic. You'd have thought he might have something to say about uh, what it's like to be in that role. But uh, unbelievably, the story continues to grow not that there is a story it was a dog running away Uh, and now there's a where's wally inspired book which has been made and you can look for fenton the dog in a very chaotic sort of richmond park scene here same sort of idea very colorful cartoons going on here this video has had seven million views the artist And illustrator Martin Berry, who created the book's illustrations, says all the drawings are very complicated and you have to find Fenton in each one as well as other things like his lead and colour. This is uh, an important contribution to our cultural mosaic, is it not?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's rather nice, though, isn't it? I must admit, uh, there's a, a picture um, on uh, the, uh, the, underneath the article, um, and I have actually been looking for Fenton, I do confess. <laughs> I don't know whether he is in this picture or not, or whether it's just his Legion and collar, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite fascinating. I do quite like the Where's Wally books as well, though, so... <laughs> well, he's now apparently
2: got a whole bunch of merchandise, so when you go onto the YouTube click... Uh, he's you know you can get all this you know, Fenton tea towels or whatever, which is interesting. Kind of the way that you know viral videos are now spawning their own mythologies. So you know, like the Gangnam style video, you know the, the silly Korean uh, uh, rapper is you know there's now thousands of versions of that, and again, he'll end up on tea towels.
3: I do hope Fenton himself is seeing some of the financial action as a result of all of this. <laughs> so something slightly more worthy let's come across to uh, there's a, a charity called hands on london and uh, they're doing good things uh, once again this winter christopher what are they up to
2: yeah they they want uh, volunteer wranglers to um, sort out their winter warm winter wear um the first week of november so the idea is um if you're going to buy a new coat get rid of your old one and uh, you can drop it off at one of over 80 different shelters and charities in london and they need people to help with the task of collecting sorting and distributing the donations and they're going to start uh, uh handing out which and um, this is the bit i don't we don't quite understand this bit we wrap up london oyster cards are being handed out on monday the 5th of november and tuesday 6th of november and then they're taking donations so we're not quite sure what the oyster cards part is about
3: no in fact i'd like to suggest hands on london that perhaps uh, another press release or something just to clarify this because i think the the idea of people getting their coats out there for people who are not warm Mm -hmm. enough obviously makes a massive amount of sense very good idea and uh, i think there's something to be said as well for making it easy for people to do as well so that they don't have to worry about taking it down to the local charity shop or something now but what's this oyster card business all about it doesn't make a huge amount of sense so some clarification would be good there more importantly though if you want to get involved with uh, helping out there are some dates that have been suggested here as you say there's uh, wednesday the 7th to friday the 9th of november uh, receiving donations 7 till 11 a.m and then on the weekends they're looking for people to just kind of sort through those things and uh, drivers are also needed to volunteer as well so some really practical stuff that you could do to uh, help the homeless and the the less well-off in the city more information you need to go to wrap up london and the email address you'll need for that is nicola at hands on and i'm sure the oyster card part of it will all s- sort of fall into place in some respect uh, actually speaking of oyster cards the ridiculous uh, bureaucracy continues to pace uh, transport for london who have issued a new oyster card one year
0: yes it says um that from the 1st of november any londoner aged 60 or over will be able to travel around the city for free um and the mayor's announced that a 60 plus oyster card that lowers the age of free transport um and it will work on the tube the buses Docklands light railway trams and the overground um as well as most national rail service outside peak hours um Until recently, anyone who'd um, blown out the candles for 60 could enjoy free travel on the Freedom Pass, which was issued by London councils. Um, And then in 2012, the government increased the qualification age for a Freedom Pass to 61, which this is all quite unfathomable to me, Um, in line with the National Pensions for Women. okay. Um, And then the Mayor's News Scream now acts as a stopgap, so it offers free travel for that stolen year.
3: So, how does it, so this is a, a backtrack by another name, isn't it? So <laughs> this is exactly the same as the scheme before, but with more, more bureaucracy paperwork. attached, more yeah. paperwork. And you've got to pay a, a £10 fee for the, the privilege of uh, having it happen. What a
2: peculiar arrangement. Yeah, this is not the sort of thing you want to know. I've thought the last few years, London's actually got a lot simpler in uh, getting around. And uh, I'd actually think the Oyster card is life changing. When we were kids, we used to have things called Red Rovers, which for, for this going back into old money before 1971, uh, for five bob, you got uh, your, your full day use on the on London transport, uh, which was a great way of encouraging schoolboys to take a day off of uh, school and just really lurk just- around the West
1: End. <laughs> <laughs>
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was delighted when they finally started tying in the overground lines into the public transport network as far as the Oyster card goes, because that was a huge omission for quite a a few years but uh, Ken sorted that out Mr. Reasonable in the comments section to this story says, uh, he he points out it's not free, residents in each borough have to pick up the bill and the cost of uh, this uh, supposedly free travel will be paid through the GLA precept, Boris is happy to claim the publicity for giving this away but he seems shy when you ask who actually pays. In Barnet, the cost of freedom passes is approximately £70 per household. This will push that bill even higher. I don't begrudge, says Mr Reasonable, people having a freedom pass, but I do wish Boris and TFL would be honest as to how it is funded.
2: Seems like his name. Yeah, I'll give it that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Little to disagree with there. The historical quiz is hoving into sight uh, for two guests with their feet firmly planted in the world of uh, London's history. Uh, there's a moment or two to let you know first what's on in London in the week ahead. Well, one of the big openings for the West End this autumn is Cabaret at the Savoy Theatre. Starring pop idol winner Will Young in his West End debut, this production is a revival of Rufus Norris's Olivier Award-winning version of the show. Based on Christopher Isherwood's book I Am a Camera, Cabaret is set during the Nazis' rise to power in 1930s Berlin, focusing on the relationship between 19-year-old English Cabaret star Sally Bowles and a young American writer. Soap star Michelle Ryan takes on the role of Sally Bowles. Cabaret opens on... On the 9th of October, it runs until January. Tickets are pretty pricey. They range from £35 through to £85. Visit the ATG Tickets website to find out more. Our dance recommendation for this week comes from across the pond. The Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet Company is based in New York and is making its highly anticipated UK debut in London this week. The company will perform three works of powerful physicality and classical technique at Sadler's Wells from Thursday the 11th of October to Saturday the 13th. Look out for some intriguing creations from some of today's most provocative dance makers. Tickets are between £12 and £27. Visit Sadler's Wells Com. Now, Tate Modern is pitching two modern visual artists against each other for their latest show. Photographer and filmmaker William Klein and Japanese photographer Daido Moriyama both worked in New York, Tokyo and Paris and made photography books that reflected their environments while pushing the boundaries of avant-garde art. They also had a shared desire to convey street life and political protest, from anti-war demonstrations and gay pride marches to the effects of globalization and urban deprivation, and their success at this will be examined in the exhibition. William Klein and Daido Mariama runs from Wednesday, the 10th of October, until January next year. Tickets, £12.70 with concessions available. Visit Tate.org.uk to find out more. Another top art exhibition opens in London this week, this time at the National. Richard Hamilton, The Late Works, is a highly personal exhibition by one of Britain's most influential artists. The show traces an intriguing path, leading to his unfinished and unseen final work, which is called Balzac A plus B. C. up until his death aged 89 Richard Hamilton who died last year was planning this major exhibition of recent works specifically for the National Gallery including work never seen before by the public This new exhibition encapsulates many of his uh, significant pieces from the last decades with his international reputation soaring during that time The exhibition is free and it runs from Wednesday the 10th of October until January Go to nationalgallery.org.uk And finally, City Showcase London 2012 is a live music festival dedicated to new acts which takes place in and around Soho and central London each year. 2012 sees the festival celebrating its 10th year and venues taking part include the 100 Club, the Borderlines Bar Rumba, the Purple Turtle and retail outlets such as Apple Ugg Coast, Ted Baker and so on This year there'll also be an electronic music programme at venues such as 93 Feet East and Cafe 1001 Confirmed artists include Ash Graham Mark Morris, Lillian Todd Jones Yellow Wire and Floodliners The festival runs from Tuesday the 9th of October until Saturday the Thirteenth, Visit cityshowcase.co.uk. And, of course, you can find out more about all of the events just listed and many more besides, as well as all the stories we've been discussing in today's show at londonist.com. So, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule, it sounds as though many of the venues around town are kind of bedding in for the winter there. Any of those uh, grab your uh, interest?
0: Uh, Yes, um, I'd quite like to go and see the Cedar Lake uh, Contemporary Ballet at Sadler's Wells. Um, I am a big fan of ballet. My mum's a ballet teacher, so I was kind of brought up with it. Um, But I don't like the prices of the West End theatres. I shan't mention them. And I always think that Sadler's Wells gives you a really great evening's entertainment for really not very much money. So I will be going to Sadler's Wells.
2: It also gives you bottled water from the Sadler's Wells. In, in the bar <laughs> um, at a slightly more expensive end Candor and Ebb's uh, Cabaret uh, this production is quite amazing because uh, the last time it was on with I think Alan Cumming um, it does actually end with a depiction of the, the concentration camps um, which is a, it's an extremely um, dark approach to the material and actually shows up the power of the material populating it with uh, soap stars and singers Uh, uh, undermines its strength a bit, but I'm sure that uh, William will will do it justice. Yes, maybe they're uh, hoping to to, uh,
3: break out of type. Or something along those lines. Well, uh, it's the moment. We have not been waiting for it. It's the historical quiz. Five questions, and I think five points up for grabs today. Well, we'll start with Monday, the 1st of October, 1868, St Pancras Station. Yes, we're back to it's all around St Pancras today. St Pancras Station is officially opened as the London terminus for the Midland Railway. Despite what?
2: Despite uh, opposition from the neighbours? <laughs> I
0: have no idea.
2: Uh, No, not right. Uh,
0: Despite the fact that the track hadn't actually reached the station yet?
3: I I like where you're going with that. I'm going to give you the point. Uh, Despite its construction being incomplete, part of the buildings would form the iconic Gothic St Pancras Chambers, which housed the Midland Grand Hotel, now replaced by the St Pancras Renaissance London Hotel and some posh apartments. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Tuesday, the 2nd of October, 1909, which venue hosts its first ever rugby match? It's got to be Twickenham, hasn't it? Of course it's Twickenham, yes. Twickenham Stadium. Harlequins beat Richmond fourteen ten. 10 Two ahead here, Fiona. <laughs> hmm. But there's time.
0: <laughs> I guess the last one.
3: <laughs> there's, there's three still to go. Wednesday the 3rd of October 1975. After holding several of the staff at a Knightsbridge Italian restaurant hostage in a storeroom, three gunmen surrendered to police. The hostages are
2: released unharmed. But how long were they held for? This is the Spaghetti House Siege, and I think it was about five days. It was not five days.
0: I'll go for slightly less. Th- I think they were held for quite a long time. I'll, I'll go for three days.
3: It was three days. Yes, well done. Fiona, again. This is looking uh, dangerously like a, a, a whitewash. Do I mean a whitewash? No, I mean something else. Altogether. Stitch up. <laughs> no, not a stitch up. <laughs> dangerously like a landslide. Thursday, the 4th of October, 1911. London Underground's first escalator goes into service at which tube station? Arles
2: Court. It it
3: is Arles Court, yes, straight in there. Dignity saved. Friday, the 5th of October, but in which year? 31 people die, and over 400 are injured as two trains collide head-on at Ladbroke Grove Junction, two miles west of Paddington Station. What year did that take place?
0: Oh, well, it was recent, wasn't it? Um... 2004.
2: Not as recent as that, no. Uh, I would have said something like 86 or something. No. no.
0: Okay, I'm going to go for 98.
2: Sounds pretty accurate.
3: Yes, it was. Well, you're bearing out, gracefully Yes, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was in uh, in that Awful event in 1999. And uh, getting pretty close to that gives us a. You've been thrashed, Christopher. Yeah. There's there's no way around this. A 4 1 uh, victory to uh, Fiona Rule this week. Well, we're right up against the clock, so really there's just time to remind people who've been listening of uh, where we can find information about uh, London's labyrinth, about the many, many titles of Christopher Fowler. Uh, Fiona, as the victor, would you care to lead off? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um, well, um, London's Labyrinth is available um, now from any good bookshops and obviously the um, the, the really obvious online retailer, um, and it's published by Ian Allen Publishing. Fantastic. And you've got a website? Uh, yes, I do. Um, it's fionarule.com, um, and you can find out more um, about London's Labyrinth and my other books there.
2: Christopher Vowler. Uh, yeah uh, brian to may and the invisible code which uh, looks at bedlam and uh, the mysterious codes that govern london life is out from trance world at the moment in hardback as are nine other volumes of brian to may stories and my next book out will be invisible ink well why london's why england's um, authors disappeared Yes, so I'm particularly looking forward to that one. That sounds great. Thank you both for being here today
3: and for hosting us, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule. Thank, Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
3: Here she stands and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Christopher Fowler and Fiona Rule. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Zoe Craig, and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Heard and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
1: Oh. You can smell on my
0: shelf, start with the cries, Lily's gonna like us still singing in the sunlight.